chapter 15, verses 40 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue English Standard Version right in front of you. There should be anyways. Uh, and I don't know what the page number is, but it's, it's there. You can get some help from someone around you if you need to know where that is. Where that is. But Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. This is the... Uh, there are only three sermons left, including this sermon in the Gospel of Mark. And as each sermon is, is done, I get a little sad because Mark has been an excellent servant of the Lord to give us the gospel of Christ. Well, before we hear God's word read, let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, sow this word into our spirits today for your praise, we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. William Perkins, the architect and the father of Puritanism, was born in a time of great courage. Perkins himself was born into a family that was Roman Catholic by name, under Queen Mary. Not that he had experienced this personally, himself as a baby, but the first months of his life in Great Britain saw much boldness from men and women who were committed to Christ's truth in the Reformation. Forty evangelical Christians were burned alive during this time. Women by the names of Alice Snoth, Alice Driver, Kathleen Knight, and other women and men were all incinerated for their firm trust in Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And when this was all said and done, 280 men and women, old and young, were tortured to death. As the Roman Catholics saw the matter, Great Britain needed to be cleansed of the plague of Protestantism. Like the plague, it spread. But unlike the plague, God's word brought healing, not disease. The names of these martyrs became household names. Their stories became more than legends, real history of God's people who were committed to Christ more than anything else. And through God's guidance, Protestant Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne and gave Reformation a fighting providence. She took the throne before Perkins could even walk, and after Queen Mary stopped walking. 
With Queen Mary's death, the burning of Christians stopped right away. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, we are told, and this truism still holds true today. We see from these verses that in the face of Jesus' death and burial, followers of Christ look for the kingdom of God and serve the body of Christ. Let's read again verses 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So in this snippet, and in the next one, verses 42 through 47 with Joseph, Mark shows us the courage of men and women. After the centurion had uttered those words that so perfectly summarize the gospel, truly, this was the Son of God, some women emerge from a distance. Mark mentions only some of these women, and their inclusion is significant, as we'll see Mark mentions Mary Magdalene. We read later on in this gospel in Mark 16, verse 9, that this woman had seven demons in her at one time in her life that were powerfully exorcised. She was, thankfully, um, these were removed from her. Mary of James the Less or James the Younger. This is likely the wife of Alphaeus. You might remember Alphaeus is one of the twelve disciples. And then there's mention of Salome. She's also mentioned in Mark 16, verse 1, and most likely she is the mother, or the wife, rather, of Zebedee. We know the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of thunder. We also see other women being mentioned here. Too many other women to count, in fact. But these women were told by, by Mark here and then told by Luke elsewhere that these women provided for Christ and the twelve out of their own means. They gave of their resources for the continued ministry of Jesus throughout those three years when he was working, especially in Galilee. You could say that they followed Jesus from the start to the it is finished What is clear from Mark is that this distant gaze of these women is not the same kind of gaze as the one that Peter had given the previous night. Remember, Peter was staying at a distance out of cowardice. He was afraid to follow Jesus, even to the death. He denied knowing Jesus three times. But these women were taking note of where the body of their Lord would be placed. They were being eyewitnesses to his death and his burial and soon his resurrection. Now, a God-given gift uh, for women is that whole see a need, fill a need mindset. Um, My mom's Italian, and she always saw a need, and it was that I had to eat. And it didn't matter when it was, where I was, honey, you, you need to eat something. Okay, well. Fettuccine Alfredo, it is. Okay. Um, she saw a need, she, she filled it, and of course other needs besides. I've been blessed about a billion times, give or take a few, first by my mother and now by my almost uh, 20 years of marriage, my wife, to receive much-needed help, even when, especially when I do not ask for the help. 
this feminine and God-given maternal instincts of these disciples kicked in. They, they saw a need, the need for Jesus' body to be prepared. Luke tells us, which Mark doesn't, but Luke tells us that they went home to prepare spices and ointment for this body. Maybe they didn't think Joseph was going to do a good enough job. This this body needs a woman's touch. And you see, just from the very beginning, these women's uh, persistent presence with the Lord, their compassionate care of the Lord's body, they stayed with him. They cared for him. These women had been with him for those three years. They didn't want to leave him. We see that their inclusion here serves as both a rebuke and an encouragement. Now, not a rebuke on the women. No. These women who hadn't left Jesus, the fact of these women that hadn't left, is really a rebuke on the 12 men that did. The 12 men that did abandon Jesus, that scattered even despite his many times, his pleas, stay with me, pray, be on the watch, I'm going to die, but you remain here a little while. And they scatter. Calvin says that this is cause to praise God who displays his power in our weakness. God has used the weak things of the world to shame the wise. The Lord saw it fit to use these weaker vessels to shame the eleven elect of the Lord, who, who vowed to follow their Lord to the death, and who had been appointed by Christ to proclaim the gospel. Certainly not I, Lord, I won't leave you. If I have to die, and if that's what it takes, then okay, so be it. And they all chimed in their voices. And they were all shown to be at that time anyways, false in their vows. The men ignored the warning from Solomon not to give their strength to women. It was these men that Christ had called to proclaim the gospel. It was to these men specifically that Jesus predicted his death, his his beatings, his his death, his, his burial, his resurrection three times. No excuses. These men knew Because Christ had told them what was going to happen. But they were weak. And they left the Lord the time that he needed them. We praise God for Deborah. We praise her for her courage, her faith, her willingness to serve the Lord with fear. But at the same time, we see even a divine rebuke on Barak for his inaction, for his cowardice as he wouldn't command the army against Sisera unless Deborah accompanied him. As the Lord used Deborah, the weaker vessel, to rebuke Barak, he now rebukes the scattering disciples with the steadfast spirits of these women. Men, do not give to your wives what God has given you to do to lead your homes. You are to lead. You are to lead with protection, both physical and spiritual. You are to lead with provision, both physical and spiritual. You are to lead with the word of God. You are to lead with your prayers. You are to lead your family. You are the head of the home. 
You do not take this upon yourself. It was given you by nature and by marriage. Lead with protection. Do not let your wives best you in your knowledge of the Lord, in your care for the kingdom of Christ, in the raising up of your children. Let this be a godly competition. Who can know the Lord better? Who can care for the kingdom of Christ better? Who can care for the children better? And, O wives, do not dare slacken your efforts on account of weak, struggling, or even sinful husbands who have renounced their duty. No. Encourage them instead. Encourage them to lead you in the Lord and be willing to be led. And if you are a soon-to-be man or a would-be husband, strengthen your strength. God has given you strength for a purpose. He has given you that desire to to leave your own family, to cleave to a wife. He has given you that desire to lead, to take godly action. Prepare now to be spiritual leaders in the home, in the church, in society. Godly women desire to be led. Godless women do not. But godly women do desire to be led, and they turn away from all coddling men. So prepare. Prepare to lead. To lead well. To lead wisely. To lead under Christ your Lord. Look for opportunities in church, in the home, society, where you can demonstrate leadership. And if that means setting up the, the ABF room, all right. That means demonstrating your mighty muscles as you stack up those chairs. I'm sure there are some girls who might look at that as well. I might be a leader one day. Find ways to serve your mom, to serve your dad, serve your brothers and sisters. Get a job if you're of an age where you can get a job. Do some yard work. Prepare to lead, to take godly action. There is also clear encouragement for women in service to Jesus. There's the rebuke for the men, but encouragement for women. The women here provided a ministry very similar to the angelic service in the wilderness. The angels served Jesus. Remember when he was being tempted in the wilderness, the angels assisted him. And when he bested Satan... The angels came back and and served him. It's the same language that's being used later on of of Peter's mother-in-law, for instance, in Mark 131, when she was healed by Jesus. What did she get up and do? Served. She served Jesus. Because Salome is likely the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we see that even Mama Zebedee is a changed woman. This is wonderful that she's here, changed. Earlier, she had boldly requested the throne for her two boys. You remember that. 
Calvin says, she had been so driven by ambition that she wanted our Lord to take his royal seat with great pomp and pageantry with her two sons as his lieutenants. This formerly foolish woman now sings to a different tune, the song of humility. God has stripped her of all earthly affection and has moved her closer and closer to the cross in union with Christ. These many women were long-standing disciples of Jesus, women who came up to Jerusalem with him. They even accompanied him at his triumphal entry. You can imagine Jesus is just coming in Jerusalem. He's surrounded, and who knows what the percentage is, but maybe 60%, 70% was the women. The women who stayed with him for those few years, giving of their own resources, they're with him, and they're saying, Hosanna! The king is here. Welcome the king. And they stayed. Mark commends to us their care, their devotion given to the Lord who bought them. Dear ones, ministry is a whole family matter. It is indeed a whole church matter. Ministry is not just for the guys It's not just for the heads of home. It's not just for the elders or the deacons. And it's not just for the gals. Some men would be happy for the women to do all the things that they're here to serve. They serve me well at home. Why not they just serve everywhere else in the church? It is for the guys. It is for the gals. It's for the old it's for the young. Every time we have a, uh, an interview of a church membership, we ask every single individual, dis- despite age, where do you find yourself serving? Where do you think the Lord has given you gifts where you can serve the church? And we'll ask that of even the youngest. Where will you serve? The elders could speak for days on the benefit, the support that they have from their wives. And how little they could do if their wives weren't with them. We need everyone who is committed to Christ to be engaged in the ministry of Christ. No exceptions. To have men as heads of home or church or society does not mean that the men go it alone. How foolish for a husband to deny himself the helpmeet, the woman fit for him. Now, when I look at my own life, the gradual growth in knowledge and godliness, I see my own mother used by God in powerful ways to be an example, to be an encouragement to me. I mean, anyone who asks me, about my own testimony and my own upbringing, will soon hear about my mother and her firm devotion to the Lord. I really have no idea where I would be without my mom. And some of you have had the pleasure of meeting her, and you know a bit of what I'm talking about. My mother, who would sing songs to me as a child, who would read the Word of God to me, who brought us to church on Sunday both times, And on Wednesday, and whenever else the doors were open, 
My mother who sacrificed hours of sleep. She prayed for decades for my life. My walk with Jesus. My mom who was instrumental even in restoring a relationship with my then girlfriend, now wife, after I had acted sinfully, rather foolishly. And likewise, anyone who speaks with me will soon hear about that wonderful wife of mine, whom many of you know. I won't point her out. She would not like that, but you know her, so I don't need to point her out. My wife, who risked a relationship with that 16-year-old red-headed weirdo, and only one of those descriptions no longer stands true. My wife, who endured my youthful, sinful passions, and poisonous, harsh tongue. My wife who said yes to a lifetime with a guy who didn't deserve grace. My wife who daily pours her life for me and for children in myriad ways. I have no idea where I would be in my life and in my ministry without my wife. These women have been and are instrumental in my own life and my own ministry. And these are not the only women, of course. Sisters. Sisters-in-law, friends, you, the Lord has used so many women in my own life to, to stir me up to godliness. And these remarks are in no way intended to butter them up. These are expressions of praise to God who works mightily in women's lives for his glory and for the good of church. Just following the biblical practice of seeing faith, seeing exemplary behavior, good conduct, and saying that's what it means to follow Jesus. And as you know, dear ones, many here are the women who love the Lord and his people. We don't have enough flower petals to count the women and their ways. The ladies of Wick come immediately to mind as a group of women willing to serve Jesus. Where would I be? Where would the session be without their prayers, without their encouragement, without their godly submission to their husbands, without their godly submission to the elders, without their ministry to the spouses of deployed soldiers, or their commitment to instruct one another in the Lord? Where would the church be without their care for the afflicted, the pregnant, the single, the bereaved, the newly married? We'd be the worse, to be sure. And many other women exemplify this. It does not go unnoticed, despite their efforts. Don't worry, I'm not going to out any of you. But as the pastor, I do come to know certain things that you do. If it's taking a meal to someone, you didn't write me an email and say, hey, by the way, I I brought this person a meal. It might be going to the hospital. It might be making a phone call. Inviting someone over for dinner, taking them to a doctor's appointment, writing them a nice card, and on and on. We are definitely blessed to have women who love the Lord. And these women are not ultimately serving me. They're not serving the session. They are serving the Lord and their Savior. Let us then also give thanks to the Lord for their gifts for their self-sacrifice, for their commitment to Christ and to his body. 
And let us also see where we might encourage them, where we might be involved as well. And turning to this second snippet here in verses 42 through 47, against the mockers, against the twelve disciples, bravery found a home in a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, John mentions Nicodemus as well, but Mark's focus here is on Joseph. Verses 44 and 45 read, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. We must not take for granted that Mark speaks to Joseph's coming after Jesus' death. Three times in these verses, we are assured that Jesus has died. There is a corpse. There is a dead body. This is one of the essential affirmations of the Christian faith. He was crucified, died, is buried. We must hold firmly to this historical truth. The Father then doesn't save the Son from death, but he saves us through the Son's death. Jesus died. He breathed his last. He didn't swoon. There wasn't some big hoax. Body wasn't stolen. None of that malarkey. And if he didn't die, then we are still stuck in our sins. And spiritual death still awaits us all. The penalty then would remain to be paid. Thanks be to God that Christ truly did die. He was truly buried. Death and burial carry significant weight for the follower of God. Abraham cared for his wife Sarah's corpse and paid Ephron the Hittite very handsomely for the cave of Machpelah that he might bury his bride and honor her body. And as we read earlier, before Joseph had died, he told his brothers not to keep his bones in Egypt forever. Don't just bury them and then leave them. No, he says, when it's time, dig them up and take them. And so Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, that these bones might be brought to the promised land. Jesus died and he was buried. And in the face of all this, we see a courageous council member, a member of the Sanhedrin. Joseph shows his courageous colors by asking for the body of Jesus. Mark says that he took courage, a word used often to speak of feats of daring, bravery. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1, it's used saying, no Christian essentially would, would dare take another Christian to court, would he? Wouldn't dare sue another brother. Or in Jude 9, it says, Michael did not dare to rebuke the devil, but says, the Lord will rebuke you. I wouldn't even dare do that. Let's think of Joseph of Marathia in, in light of Romans 5, 7, that people would, would dare to die for a good person. We might be very confused here and say, well, hold on a second. Jesus isn't still alive at this point, so why dare? Where's, where's the daring? Where's the bravery? Shouldn't the courage have been before? Shouldn't he have just run up to the cross and said, no, stop, we're not doing this. Don't put him up there. 
It's a strange courage, isn't it? It's, it's odd because he is courageously seeking a dead body. He's not defending a good person's life that's currently being threatened, but one whose life has been already killed. At the moment of apparent defeat, just like in the case of the centurion, there is clear and courageous conviction. Joseph risks the fury of the people. He risks guilt by association from Pilate. He risks shame with a criminal. How dare anyone line himself up with that dead criminal outside the city? He even risks excommunication from the Sanhedrin, that council that declared Jesus guilty and worthy of death. He was a member of that council, though he didn't personally agree with that decision. That's what he knew. He had that prestige with with all the other council members, the ruling elders of the day, the ones who made really important decisions, where life and death, where it meant life and death sometimes. And he risks all that. And in so doing, he numbers himself among the transgressor, among that criminal. He joins himself with Jesus. As we see him connecting here with the Christ, how can we avoid thinking of Paul's words in Romans 6? We who have been baptized, we're baptized into his death, into Christ. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might, to the glory of the Father, be raised in newness of life. We're with Christ. That means we're with him in his death, in his burial. It also means we're with him in the resurrection. Joseph is, is joining with the death of Jesus. Saying, yes, Jesus died. And he wants to honor the body of Christ. But what does it really matter if a burial takes place or doesn't? One might wonder. After all, the, the body is dead and gone. It'll be worm food, as people say. It matters because this burial, when we consider all of Scripture, points to the time after it. Points to the resurrection. Why did Abraham care for a cave for Sarah? Why did Joseph care about his bones? He wasn't going to need them. Calvin says if there was no resurrection, it would not matter if they were thrown out to be eaten by dogs or wild animals. But they were buried honorably to show that they would not perish even though they decayed. Even though their bodies wasted away, they were raised to the heavens. And they're worshiping their God forever and ever, awaiting the resurrection when their body and soul will reunite. Their faith was not in the grave. Our faith is not in the grave, but in the one who raised them, the one who raised us to newness of life. First, spiritual life. And soon, Lord willing, soon, resurrection life.
body and soul together again in the new heavens and earth. This faith of expectancy is seen in this beautiful phrase that he was looking for the kingdom of God. In verse 43, he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Every faithful Jew would pray this prayer in the synagogue. May God let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and a lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Sounds very similar to the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Kingdom come, will be done. Simeon awaited the kingdom in the consolation of Israel, and he found it in the newborn king. Anna spent most of her life awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem, and she found it in the baby Jesus. And now Joseph of Arimathea says, to hell with the Sanhedrin. Enough of that. If the Sanhedrin is going to condemn the Christ, I would rather be with the condemned. He's taken sides. I'm with Jesus, the one who is who's dead. The one whose body I'm going to put in a tomb. That's where, that's where my allegiance is. That's, I'm with him. I'm with the dead one. I'm not with all those who are alive on earth, but who are spiritually dead, who are headed to hell if they don't trust in Christ. No, I am with the Christ, with the condemned, with the one who will rise. The kingdom is not full of dead bones, but of living stones, because the stone has rolled away. And before we look at that resurrection next week, we join ourselves to the body of Christ. And as we do, we honor the body. We honor the physical body of Christ. We say, yes, Jesus physically died. No hope without the physical death of Jesus. We don't want to remain in our sins, do we? Will that penalty remain to be paid? Or has has someone already paid it? And what did he do to pay that? He gave his life. He gave his physical body. That was good. Spotless. It was without blemish. I know the world will call us fools. We'll say, you believe in that stuff? That Jesus actually was alive? That he, that, he, that he was actually in existence? He was a person? Yes. I'll be counted a fool if that means I'm, I'm lined up with Jesus. We honor the physical body of Christ. We also honor those who make up the body of Christ. We honor one another. We are tenderhearted towards one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We confess our sins to one another. We encourage one another to love and good deeds. We look for different ways where each of us could, could serve Christ and say, you should, you should do this. You'd be really good at, at doing that. We, we honor one another. We value one another as brothers and sisters, not only as people who have the image of God stamped on them indelibly, but as brothers and sisters 
purchased by Christ. Our action towards one another should not be the same as the world's actions towards us. Let us lead with love, honor, grace, patience, mercy, kindness, truth, faithfulness. I'm not going to leave this relationship because you and I are spending eternity together. I'm going to honor you by sticking through this. I love you too much. We honor the sacramental body of Christ. We do not consider the Lord's Supper a small matter. It's not a light thing that we're having the Lord's Supper a second time today, this evening. It's not a light matter at all. It might become light to some of us because we take it every week and we say, well, I had it in the morning, I don't need it in the evening. Of course, in one sense, you don't need it in the evening, but shouldn't you be excited about having it a second time? If it's really a means of grace, if God is really using the bread and the wine in some mysterious way for your growth and godliness, then have at it. Let's take it whenever it's offered. In corporate worship, of course, not outside of corporate worship. No private masses. That's another thing. Okay? We don't consider Lord's Supper a small matter. One woman certainly didn't. She was a market trader in the 1600s in Scotland. I'm sure at least one of you knows this story. King Charles I sought ways to incorporate Anglicanism into Scotland's worship, and especially the Anglican view of the Lord's Supper, of, of having the, the, um, the bread truly uh, changed into the body of Christ, and the wine truly changed, physically changed, literally changed into the blood of Jesus. That's, the, that was, that's what the, uh, the view was that was trying to be uh, hoisted upon these, these men and women in Scotland in the 1600s. In 1637, the Book of Common Prayer was given to the Church of Scotland. And in St. Giles' Cathedral, a man named James Hanny, the Dean of Edinburgh, started to read the prayers. And as soon as he did, a stool came hurling at his head. The stool flung from the hands of a Jenny Geddes, who then said, Devil, cause you colic in your stomach, false thief. Dare you say the Mass in my ear? These Presbyterians were not going to have that in their worship. Don't you dare bring that Roman Catholic Mass here. Don't you bring those, those prayers to the saints. Don't you bring that adoration of Mary. Don't you bring all that stuff in here. This is pure, simple worship. Lord Barrett, just a couple decades later, Lord Barrett of Newborough said, I hear they were, by the women, beaten out of the church with their little stools. Talk about women in the ministry. Women who value Christ the King. And he saw abuses going on in the church and said, Yeah, right. Not here. Get that out of here. It's Lord's Supper. Just some bread and some wine? No, it's not just some bread. It's not just some wine. These are signs and seals of the life of Christ. We honor the body. And with the saints of old and new, we we look for the kingdom of God. With John the Baptist and with Jesus our Lord, we say, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. 
as we have opportunity. We call upon our family members, our relatives, our neighbors. We, we call upon them to repent. Out of love, we say, I don't want you to go to hell and suffer the wrath of God forever. Repent. Turn to Jesus. And with Christ, we pray, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That should be a fervent prayer of ours. Every week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And with all the saints, we patiently fight until his kingdom has come completely. With the sword of truth, we fight like Mr. Valiant, who waged war against Wildhead, inconsiderate and pragmatic. I fought till my sword did cleave to my hand. And when they were joined together as if a sword grew out of my arm and the blood ran through my fingers, then I fought with the most courage. This, dear ones, is the fight of faith, the courage that we have as strengthened by the Spirit to live in the kingdom of God and to look for the kingdom of God. And it will come. Praise be to the King. Let's pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. May it bring forth thirty, sixty, a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen.